Welcome to Growth Island, your go-to podcast on how to be the best version of yourself. Now, let's join your host, Mess Freeze, as he interviews high performers and experts in nutrition, meditation, exercise, relationships, business, general health, and life's bigger mysteries. Welcome to this episode of Growth Island. Today, we're going to talk about aging and how to age well. What is some of the cutting research actually saying? And for that, I got the co-director of the Rochester Aging Research Center, Vera Gorbonova. She is a very um, quick at writing, you would say. She's published a lot of papers, so uh, she's not been on the slow side in the academia. So she knows a lot about both how to do proper research, but also some pretty cool results about what we're seeing about how to age well. So Vera, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for the invitation. Vera, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into all of this research. Oh, so I've been in this field for a very long time, over 20 years. Um, I became interested in aging research very early on when I was still in college. Uh, a biology student, I was thinking about what area of biology would be most fascinating. And uh, everything seemed fascinating, but aging in particular really caught my attention because it's both a very important fundamental science problem, and it touches everyone. Everybody ages, almost every living thing ages. Uh, so it affects also the society in major way. And I thought that this would be really exciting problem to tackle both as a scientist and also for the benefit of the people. It's a fantastic subject and it's something that's gaining a lot more attention these days and also a lot more venture capital. This Atlas, which has like some of the most wealthy people in the world where academics are joining. Uh, there to kind of do the research. What uh, what do we understand about aging today? Well, we understand more and more. So the knowledge has really expanded exponentially, I would say, within the past uh, 15 years or so. Uh, when I just was joining the field early in my career, we knew very little. Um, and then uh, people started studying aging, first using very short-lived organisms like fruit flies or worms, uh, found certain genes that can affect aging, that can make these short-lived organisms live longer. So that was first the beginning of understanding that there is a genetic component of aging and we can actually change the rate of aging. So it's, uh, it's not something that's completely inevitable. We can manipulate it. And, and then... Of course, in more recent years, the attention shifted from the very short-lived model organisms to humans and to also other long-lived organisms. And this is one of the important topics of my research to understand very long-lived organisms because they have those mechanisms that we can borrow from them. And we find more and more of such examples. And then um, I think we are coming very close uh, to developing interventions to slow the rate of aging. What are some, I've heard that we've been able to um, increase the lifespan of mice, worms, and flies, or mosquitoes. What are some of the results that you've seen? There's something like, uh, is it 2x mice, 5x 
mosquitoes, which should definitely be illegal uh, when you're oh, talking about children. fruit flies. So yeah, fruit people flies. don't yeah. <laughs> work with mosquitoes. Mostly people work with mosquitoes to find ways to kill them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then a worm, something like 10x. Like what are some of the results have you seen uh, that were kind of like astonishing or like uh, surprising or interesting? Well, you are very accurate, right, in this assessment. Indeed, it is much easier to extend lifespan of those simple organisms. Uh, there are many different interventions that can extend lifespan of the worm. Uh, and then as you go, you know, from worms and flies to mice, it gets more difficult. So probably the more complex mammalian organisms are, are more difficult to manipulate. And the only very few interventions that work in the worm will also work in the mouse. And of course, now thinking, okay, what about human? So maybe, you know, not everything that work, works in the mouse will work in human. And that's the reason why we are focusing on organisms that we, mammals that are long-lived, like whales or naked mole rats or bats, other long-lived animals. Because if we find something that mechanistically from molecular point of view, they're doing something different. So then the likelihood that this will translate well into humans is actually much higher. Got it. What are some of the things that we can see now that we can actually do to make sure we live longer and healthier life? Because it's not about just living long life. It's very much about living a life that's worth living as well. Right. That's true. Nobody wants to live a long life but being uh, disabled and frail so when we are talking about life extension of course we mean health healthy life and health span um and um, that's important because some people are sort of skeptical do we want to extend lifespan because there will be many frail people but um this is really not the case uh if you look at centenarians so these are people that live hundred and beyond, uh, many of them, are, most of them are extremely healthy. So they actually compress this period of uh, morbidity and disability to the very end of their life. So if they have, they live hundred years, but they're staying active for, you know, maybe 90, 95 of those years. Uh, so these two things really go together. You extend lifespan and you improve health as well. So now to your question, what can we do, right? So, Human centenarians, they are very lucky individuals and they may have some perhaps genetic uh, makeup that helps them do it. Uh, but what about an average person? <laughs> what can you and I do? <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, so there are certain things that we learned. Um, you know, many of them are life's, lifestyle modifications, which are fairly easy to implement. And then they are very safe. Of course, there are now also some pharmaceutical strategies and not all of them are very well sort of verified and controlled, but, you know, some of them are safer than others. So people try it anyway. So in terms of life, lifestyle modifications, you know, I, these are maybe obvious things, <laughs> but, you know, they're, they're still true. Um, so moderate exercise is good. Uh, and, uh, 
I'm not talking about uh, like Olympic sports. No, you, it has to be moderate, right? You don't want to put too much strain on your body, but at the same time, you know, being sedentary is not what we evolved to be. Humans been always moving. So, so how we, do we figure out what's moderate, like the good amount of exercise? So I have some of the listeners that are very active, and then I have some that's going to use this as an excuse to say like, oh, but Vera said, don't exercise too much. So what would you recommend? Like, what's a good amount? Well, of course, it's also very, very personal because some people, you know, they're very fit and they can exercise a lot without feeling any negative effects. And of course, you kind of adjust it also as you get older. Uh, but I would say on average, um, you know, moderate exercise, you know, maybe running or walking like, you know, like one hour per day, is okay, but without, you know, extreme exhaustion or extreme strain on your joints, because that's also part of the anatomy that wears out <laughs> fairly quickly. And this is what, you know, many professional athletes actually suffer from um, joint problems later in life. Um, you know, like there is low impact exercise, such as, uh, you know, swimming is always very good. Uh, walking, you know, for some people running is fine, but for other people running may be already putting too much strain on the joints. Fair. <laughs> that uh, sounds so similar to Mark Sisson as well. Mark Sisson uh, is a guy behind Primal Health and he talks about do like low intensity movement every single day. Um, like ideally, I think he talks about an hour or more but uh, not high intensity. And then like three times uh, a week, he suggests some kind of sprinting. So like three sets of between 15 to 60 seconds is all. And then lifting heavy things, I think two to three times a week and the rest should just kind of be play, but some kind of movement. So we're not just sitting. Right, right. Yeah, this is this is very, very good advice, right? So there's just the walking, you know, and then also the, you know, exercising the muscles with the lifting. So just a good combination, but um, in, in moderation, I would say. Uh, so this is in terms of staying active. Um, you know, diet is very important, obviously. Um, so not overeating. <laughs> this is this has been, you know, really the problem of modern society that people eat too much. Uh, and people eat too much of, uh, you know, very calorie-rich foods um, that our bodies didn't really learn to handle. Um, so, in you, animals... Yeah, in regards ahead. to eating, uh, I heard a lot about fasting and calorie restriction. And I know some of the research, a lot of it is in, uh, I think it's in mice and so on, but we're also getting more research when it comes to fasting in humans and calorie restriction. Is that something that you've looked at or seen any of the science behind Yes, yes. So I, we didn't directly uh, study calorie restriction in humans, but of course, I've been talking to many colleagues and reading literature. Uh, so this is a very fascinating field. Uh, in model organisms, mice, flies, uh, calorie restriction generally is very powerful at extending lifespan. Uh, whether it will have exactly the same effect in humans is still questionable because uh, mice and flies and worms, uh, they are very fast living creatures. So for them, you know, slowing down a little bit is already beneficial. But humans are not as fast living. It takes really a long time for us to mature and 
we live for a long time. So the effect may be not as dramatic as in mice. In mice, you can extend lifespan like 30%, 40% with calorie restriction. Uh, it is unlikely that in humans, like we would live to 150. Um, but, but there are definite uh, health benefits of that. Um, just not, not, not overeating. Um, whether color restriction in itself will be as powerful in the mouse as in the mouse, we still don't know. So there are studies in humans, but they're mostly short term. Uh, and there is still a debate whether it's benefit of real uh, color restriction or just benefit of not overeating. But overall, it's a good thing. Uh, it's very difficult for an average person to sustain um, color restriction of, you know, like, significant color restriction, like what is applied to animals, you know, 20, 30%. It's just very difficult. It's not fun. <laughs> uh, so for humans, a much more uh, practical approach would be intermittent fasting, where, for example, you there is one day a week where you either don't eat or just eat very little, or maybe even for some people, even that is unpleasant and uh, un unsustainable. So then maybe skipping a meal, you know, for example, you skip lunch. So you, st you feel a little bit of hunger. And that may be a good thing because the science tells us that this is what helps actually promote longevity and upregulate those defensive genes in uh, model organisms that there is this signal, well, there is some scarcity of resources but upregulate your maintenance and then you can survive a little bit longer until conditions are good for reproduction. So that's like for the worm, this is how it works. So for humans, perhaps we can use similar logic. So, okay, you skip lunch and you feel a little bit hungry by dinner time and that may be giving some benefits. And then at the same time, it doesn't make your life very sad by continuously being hungry. That makes sense. I do intermittent fasting. I've been doing it for a while, but basically just where I, I eat dinner, ideally early, and then I skip breakfast. And the first three weeks, it was very hard for me to adjust to because I've always been eating breakfast. So for me, I was like always breakfast. And then I feel kind of like dizzy in the start. I use this app to time it and so on. But I read and heard this like a three weeks adjustment period. And once you adjust to it, it's much easier. And today I only fast the days when it feels right. So if I feel like my body is craving some food in the morning, I eat some food in the morning. And then probably like four to six days a week, I have those 16, 16 18 hours of, uh, of a window where I don't eat. But now it's much easier. Yeah, yeah, that, that is very important point also about the timing, uh, because the, there is this um, view that the time um, of the meal is very important. It's important to have this period when we are not eating. Uh, and that would, uh, you know, most um, logically be the night time. So if, let's say, you ate dinner not too late, and then you either skip breakfast or eat it relatively late, so then you actually have this window uh, of, uh, you know, when the organism can kind of adjust to the lack of food and that's already beneficial. So uh, in animal studies, just restri time restricting uh, feeding was sometimes giving the same benefit as a full-blown calorie restriction. Um, and another important point here is that 
um, you know, again, sort of moving a little bit away from um, diet, but more like how it's administered, um, keeping proper sleep patterns is very important. Because when people, for, for example, eat very late or wake up at night and go to the fridge to eat something, so that really disrupts circadian, disrupts circadian rhythms. Uh, and what our research and research of other groups has shown that uh, circadian regulation is extremely important uh, for longevity. Um, we have a paper that's right now in press in cell metabolism, so it will be available fairly soon, uh, where we show that in uh, long-lived species, different metabolic genes um, are sort of expressed at slightly lower level, and they are controlled by circadian genes, so they are under the circadian control. And then what it means for you know humans is that if you disrupt circadian control, if you go and eat in the middle of the night, for example, or you just you don't sleep, you keep working. Uh, so those metabolic genes that are negatively associated with lifespan will be expressed more continuously. Uh, so it will have a negative effect on lifespan. So this is why it's really important to keep nighttime, you know, free from <laughs> food and the preferably, you know, keep the lights down. So because when uh, you have artificial lights at night, so that's really the best way to disrupt your circadian clocks. So staying away from blue light in the evening is one of the main advices, not sitting with our phone. Is that correct? Well, you know, blue light or maybe any light. I think the research is still uh, there, there are very different schools of you know <laughs> what what kind of light. But I would say any light. Uh, just limit your light exposure. If let's say if you must be do do something late, so then really dim your lights as much as possible, so that uh, you don't disrupt your circadian rhythm. You know, the best is just go to sleep <laughs> and have this period of uh, uninterrupted sleep. So this is, you know, one other suggestion. Um, now in terms of what to eat, right? So there are so many different um, ideas here. Um, I would say one fairly, you know, pleasant <laughs> strategy uh, is to eat different plant foods, so Mediterranean diet, and probably people know what that is, so that's diet that's rich in fruits, vegetables, you know, fairly low amount of grains, um, some fish and, uh, you know, maybe chicken, but very low red meat. Um, so really sort of staying away from grains, uh, dairy, you know, used to be considered, well, dairy is so important, and of course, um, especially, you know, in, in the north where there are not many fruits and vegetables. That's what how people survived through centuries. Uh, but right now we have access to other sources of food. So I think minimizing dairy actually <laughs> is quite beneficial. Uh, and eating a lot of, you know, berries and uh, um, all these, um, you know, I, I would say like all, colored vegetables and fruits and well, because when we are a different um, performing different screens for compounds that extend lifespan in model organisms or activate certain pro-longevity enzymes very often we find flavonoids 
all of the, these molecules that, for example, give color to blueberries or uh, raspberries or different, you know, other berries like that. So they have these prolongevity effects, and uh, it often it is often difficult to isolate this particular compound and say, oh well, this alone uh, will give all the benefits. It's more like the complex of all of these molecules together. And that is beneficial. So I can recommend people eating uh, blueberries. <laughs> it will not hurt anyone. And uh, strawberries and cabbage uh, also has many pro-longevity compounds and other brassica-related uh, vegetables. Uh, so this is, and then I can also recommend something that came from our research more specifically. So we are studying this um, sirtuins and the particular sirtuin 6, uh, which is a very important longevity gene. And we were looking for molecules that activate it. And um, we found, and um, actually it was found even before us, but people were looking at activators of deacetylation activity of sirtuins, and they found different compounds. And then we found that sirtuin 6 has another activity called monoidipyribosylation. So we, we tested which activator molecules activate that activity as well, because we find that that activity is maybe even more important for human longevity. And we found the seaweed. <laughs> uh, and the compound in seaweed is called fucoidin, which is a short... Um, sugar polysaccharide, uh, a very potent activator of sirtuin 6. Uh, it is found in brown seaweed. And uh, people that consume a lot of seaweed, uh, you know, the countries that consume a lot of seaweed would be Japan, South Korea. And these are countries with the highest life expectancy. So all of this kind of comes together. So jumping uh, into that. Vera, I am in Mexico right now, Playa del Carmen. There's so much seaweed at the beach. Should uh -huh. I just go take a bite down there or how is it with seaweed? I heard it's a little bit more complex than that. Yes. So, so there is a lot, you know, there are many different species of seaweed. I think in general, seaweed is good for you. For, you know, it has many different nutrients that people have been using. So probably any seaweed has some benefits. Uh, but uh, in terms of activating sirtuin 6, uh, this compound is found in certain species of brown seaweed. Uh, and uh, we in the laboratory tested different batches of seaweed because if you just, you know, buy seaweed, it would be from different uh, oceans and uh, different locations. So they are not all the same. Uh, and uh, from... You know, if you take 10 batches, maybe three of them will have a strong activating uh, activity. So we tested in the laboratory, we find that some of the batches have stronger activation. Um, so we, we don't yet know exactly what determines it. You know, maybe really conditions under which this seaweed was growing, how much sunlight it was getting. So how do we find that seaweed? Uh, or do we need to wait for uh, more research to be found and then it's going to be cultivated in more places? Uh, well, so uh, Fukuidan in general, you know, it's possible to buy it as a supplement. Um, but of course, in that case, you still don't know if that will be a good activator or not. So uh, we collaborate with the 
a supplement uh, pro-longevity company do not age and we test for them batches of seaweed so you can buy from them cert 6 activator that we tested you know we don't test like it every day but they send us a sample from every new lot that they get and we test it activate cert 6. Okay. so in this yep. case you can get a product that's been verified and how like what does it actually go and do in the body Like what's the uh, well, process apart from that is good for anti-aging? Uh, you know, it is a it is a polysaccharide, so it's it's food. It's very safe. Uh, we know that it activates sirtuin six, and sirtuin six is an enzyme uh, that is in the nucleus of every cell, and it is responsible for maintaining um, our DNA packaged in the right way. Um, and when we get older, sirtuin six may just um, may not be enough of it to maintain our DNA in good shape. Uh, and by maintaining good shape, I mean that it's not only it helps repair mutations uh, or damage, but also it, it just helps keeping it organized. Because you can imagine DNA is very is a very long molecule, right? and this is like if you have a you know this thread and it gets all tangled together so it needs to be very well organized uh, and as we get older like every cycle of cell division DNA gets unraveled and packaged back together or every time a gene is transcribed again it's to be opened and put together so it gets messed up it, it's almost like You know, if you fold laundry in your sock drawer, like when we are young, it's all very nice and organized. But over time, you go in and out, pull things, <laughs> and then it becomes a mess. So what sirtuin 6 can do, it can go back and just organize things back together. Um, so what um, seaweed can help here is that it just provides a boost to cert 6 It activates it, and it can be, you know... A little bit more efficient in doing its job with where it, it needs this help as we get older because there there, there is more <laughs> more laundry to fold at that point makes sense makes sense what are some other things that uh, is fascinating right now in regards to the aging well that uh, you think is promising but they might not have made or hit the mainstream news well there are so many developments right now and you know it really some of them are closer to the to being really implemented in people and some further away for example um you know very exciting direction was so-called partial reprogramming or yamanaka factors um senior yamanaka received nobel prize several years ago where he showed that By expressing these factors, uh, you can take uh, like a cell, for example, skin cell, and convert it into embryonic cells. So that's you know, very powerful. And then other researchers express the same factors in the mouse uh, just a very short period of time, and then mouse got younger. So it's similar to what I was telling you about, you know, folding laundry. So here these factors, they also kind of refolded everything made the cell younger. Uh, so this is very exciting, but at the same time, I think it still has a long way to go before being 
used in people uh, because it's dangerous. Because what these uh, reprogramming factors can do, they can really change the fate of the cell. And then, okay, it's good if it just becomes young, healthy cell. But what if it refolds and becomes a cancerous? <laughs> so there is this danger. Um, but, you know, if we can really make it safe at some point, so that would be really a way of not just slowing down aging, but re reversing age. That would be fascinating. We are very curious about, like, how is it day-to-day -day for someone like you doing research on anti-aging? Like, how does that look like? Oh, well, you know, it's it's very exciting <laughs> job <laughs> to do. Every day, you know, I get up and usually I talk to my students and postdocs. They show the results of the experiments. We discuss them. And things don't, you know, in science, there is a lot of hard work where often you think, okay, I make this experiment and I expect certain result. And then you do the experiment and you get the result. <laughs> what is this? I don't understand what's going on. And often... You know, it's important not to throw things out the window, but actually think, because maybe there is something really new that you never thought about. Maybe it's actually even better than the results you wanted to get. Maybe it opens up some new directions. And we had many cases of that. Um, and then if you really find something new and then you start doing more experiments to probe it and that's kind of a process of discovery. It never really works as planned because we humans can think about, you know, how things should work. But when you do experiments, <laughs> it's very often it's completely different. But but still, if you if you don't ignore those unexpected findings, so then you come to something really exciting. Um, like you know, one example would be when we started working with naked Morad. A naked morat is a rodent that lives 40 years, tiny rodent. So we were trying to understand the secrets of longevity of naked morats, and also they almost never get cancer. So we didn't even know okay, how do we figure out why. Um, so we took biopsies from naked morats, started growing cells, and just watching them, hoping maybe we see something useful. Uh, and then we noticed that these cells secrete something gooey in the media. So the culture media was becoming gooey and people were annoyed by that because it clogs your pipette. But then we decided, well, we shouldn't ignore it. Let's figure out what, what the goo is. And turned out the goo was hyaluronic acid. So this is a molecule that, you know, people, many people are familiar with in different cosmetics. It's also used in medicine. And apparently, naked morals make a ton of it, and, and it's important for their longevity. <laughs> so that actually led us to figuring out this longevity mechanism for the naked morals that we didn't ignore. Fascinating. Vera, what's one of the, what's one of the main misconceptions in the anti-aging field where you're like, oh no, did they just say that again? And now they totally took this research and screwed it around. What are some of the main misconceptions in the industry? Well, you know, I, I don't think there are main misconceptions. People, you know, 
scientific knowledge accumulates, like often you, you believe something is true, but then you understand it better and, you know, the opinion can change. So it's constantly evolving. So I wouldn't say there is like one thing that's totally wrong. Um, no, there are some things we don't know. <laughs> yeah. Fair. What do you think about the people that say that we're going to be lived to 150 or 180 years? I, I think it's possible. Um, I don't know exactly when this will happen. I'm hoping that you know, maybe fairly soon. Um, so the maximum lifespan of human beings has been constant for a very long time. So it's 120 years, plus minus. And the, even in the Bible, there is this verse that, well, human lifespan was limited to 120 years, so which tells us that like for a couple thousand years it has hasn't changed. Um, median lifespan changed a lot with better sanitation, safe environment. So people used to live like, you know, maybe 30, 40 years. Now almost everyone lives 70s and 80s. But, you know, I think what will happen eventually that like everyone could probably live to 120 because that's, we know, this is sort of hard <laughs> limit for human maximum lifespan. And then your question, can we live beyond 120? Uh, I think that just by sanitation, we probably won't get there. But if we find, uh, you know, by doing research, if we find strategies to actually change the rate of aging or achieve this rejuvenation by, you know, cert 6 or Yamanaka factors, so then I think we can bypass this limit. <laughs> That'll be fascinating. I hope to be part of that generation that get to get so many uh, wonderful, healthy years. Vera, what's, you made it pretty far career-wise, um, and a lot of people have been in academia and so on. What do you think is the difference since you got as far as you are with your career now and, uh, and being so high up in the academic world? The difference between <laughs> between you and some of the other people that might have had the same desires, but uh, but didn't get that far. Oh well, you know it's difficult to say. Um, no, it, it's just there is a some element of luck, right? You make certain discoveries. You don't ignore those unexpected findings, um, and um, you know hard work. Um, just trying, you know, that there is, of course, a very big limitation uh, is funding. Like biological research is expensive. Um, so it's not enough to just sit at home and, uh, you know, you have great ideas, you just do it on the computer. Although, you know, nowadays there is a lot of data that accumulated. So even people that are just doing computational work can also, you know, get very far. But still, in biology, you need experiment. And experiment is very expensive. Uh, so there, there is always this, um, you know, very <laughs> important task of raising funds for research and that what moves you forward. Well, I always ask the guests before we end, what are three recommendations you would give for how to live a happy, healthy, and meaningful life? I think happy, healthy, meaningful. It's very important to, you know, do things you love and you find meaningful because, yeah, if your day is occupied with things, you know, you consider unimportant and 
don't enjoy them. It's a, it's not it's not a very happy life. So just um, trying to do things that you love and uh, that you believe are important. Um, you know, staying healthy. We talked a lot about you know different strategies for doing that, and um, I think uh, finally probably the third for human beings it's very important you know social interactions so being surrounded by loved ones people who care about you so that's extremely important thank you well it's interesting that i've interviewed like top scientists like yourself i've interviewed top athletes and people at the top of their career and many people come with similar advice social connections find meaning in life don't be too hard on yourself get sleep movement and get proper food those are some of the most common ones that come. So there must be something about it since that many people from different walks of life are recommending it. Yeah, we so try to be a happy person. You know, something else that came up from studies of centenarians uh, was that, of course, there is a lot of genetics and uh, biology, uh, but another common trait among centenarians was that they're generally more positive people uh, and even if they experience adversity in life, uh, they recover from it more easily. It doesn't make them as depressed as most of the population. So keeping this positive attitude perhaps is also very important for longevity. It is, it is. Where can people find out more about you Vera, and your research? Um, well, so I guess I can send you my website. So I'm at the University of Rochester, Vera Garbunova. That's probably the best way. Look up the website, uh, publications. Sure. I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. So, Vera, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing some of all of your knowledge from uh, so many years of doing research. I really appreciate it. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Island. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes on how to be the best version of yourself. And if you found this show helpful, then please leave us a review so more people will learn about the podcast or share with a friend who can benefit from it too. Thank you again and have a wonderful day.